Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We're here to catch you up on all things health and wellness. So let's get into it. Have you seen them in your city yet? Electric scooters that you can rent through an app to get around town? The ones you leave wherever you are when you're done with them? They might seem fun, like a quick alternative to bad traffic, but the scooters can go pretty fast, up to 15 miles an hour. Plus, you can't rent a helmet when you're ready to hop on a scooter. And if you fall, you could get hurt, sometimes badly. The scooter's wheels may suddenly stop or lurch when you go over cracks or potholes. And if you use your phone while on a scooter or ride after you've had a couple of drinks, just not a good idea. Those are extra risks. Several cities, including San Francisco, Seattle, and Charleston, South Carolina, had banned the scooters, at least temporarily, while they figured out what the rules should be. There aren't any solid statistics on scooter injuries just yet, since these services are still new, but ER doctors are already seeing injuries from them. Now, the companies behind the scooters say to put safety first. They all recommend wearing helmets and following local traffic laws and watching out for pedestrians and hazards like potholes. Joining us to talk about all this is Dr. Lee Vinoker. She's an emergency physician and a national spokesperson for the American College of Emergency Physicians. Dr. Vinoker, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. What kind of scooter injuries have you and your colleagues seen? What are some of the most common ones and what have been some of the worst ones? Pretty much the whole gamut of things from falling off, people hitting their heads, having uh, ankle um, foot injuries, having a wrist and hand injuries when they fall off. And what are some of the biggest risks from those injuries? Well, fractures, of course. Obviously, a head injury is much more uh, serious. The issue is that, as you alluded to, People aren't walking around carrying a helmet in case they see a scooter. I mean, when kids used to get those scooters for Christmas or presents, their parents would get them helmets and wrist guards and shin guards and all these other things that people use when they're riding scooters or inline skating, and and people aren't using these. And these are much more powerful scooters than the original kids' scooters. And I think another danger is if you've never ridden one before. I mean, they, they're electric, so they have instant torque. So they can just start at full speed, which some people m- may not be ready for or realize, especially right. if they've never ridden one. That could be kind of surprising. And you mentioned that kids who get scooters often wear helmets, but you may not be walking around carrying a helmet when you're <laughs> riding one of these. Tell us a little bit about why a helmet is an important part of safety on one of these scooters. Well, like any um, moving (laughs) uh, vehicle that you're going to be on, a bicycle, even roller blades, things like that, we recommend helmets to to protect your, your head. I think I had read somewhere a study that looked at two countries in the Netherlands. I guess people ride a lot of bikes, but they don't need helmets. And another country like Australia, they They do require helmets for bicyclists, and uh, there's a much higher incidence of serious traumatic head and brain injury for people riding bicycles without helmets. And, And this is a similar situation. You're just walking around, you see one lying down, you decide to pick it up and take it to where you're going, and you don't have the proper equipment. So speaking of equipment, if you do get a helmet, do you have any tips on how people 
can choose one? What are some of the things they should look for? I think a very good uh, bicycle helmet, obviously. Some of them have uh, ratings in them. You can talk to a salesperson at the store and and ask them the difference because it needs to go over your forehead, fit snug. It needs to be the correct size. So you really do need to get your own helmet and uh, have it sized properly uh, and make sure it's fitting you properly when you uh, leave the store. What other safety tips would you have for people who want to give these scooters a try? Some of it is going to have to do with a little bit of legislation in the cities. You know, we see injuries, we've seen pedestrians get injured from people weaving in and out of sidewalks on scooters. So if there are bike lanes, I think I certainly think the scooters are motorized vehicles and there should be ordinances that say they should be where the motorized vehicles go the same way you can't ride your bicycle on the sidewalk, but we're not definitely seeing that. And the fact that they're dockless and you can leave them anywhere, you know, they're a tripping hazard. So if you are going to leave it anywhere, perhaps make sure it's in, in not in a thoroughfare in a busy city where, you know, there's a lot of foot traffic because that's potentially dangerous too, even as a pedestrian. And then making sure you have the proper equipment, a helmet at the least. I mean, I can't picture people going to work with their briefcase and not only carrying a helmet, but having shin guards and wrist guards. I mean, that's a lot of uh, equipment to have uh, to try and get back and forth to work if that's what you're using the scooter for. But at at the very least, having a helmet and trying it out sometime, maybe not when you're busy and trying to rush to work and see exactly the torque in it and how, how fast it goes. And just being cognizant of cars and the same way you would on a bicycle. That makes sense. Just as using any kind of vehicle. I mean, you shouldn't be texting or on your phone when you're doing it. It, You can't divide your attention that way. You shouldn't be consuming alcohol uh, when you're doing it. So if you think you're going to the bar and you're too drunk to get behind the wheel of a car, I would venture to say you're probably too drunk to get on an electric vehicle and, and zoom home. Don't be using your phone. Don't be drinking. Be vigilant of traffic and pedestrians and follow the rules of the road. You need to be smart, too. I mean, using a scooter in a bicycle lane is probably okay because it's deemed safe for bicycles. But the same way bicycles probably shouldn't be on highways or busy uh, traffic thoroughfares that don't have separate lanes to for them. Things like circles within Washington, D.C. People are always so busy paying attention to when they can get in the circle. If you come up on the side of of a vehicle in either a bicycle or a scooter, there's a high probability you could be hit because nobody's looking out for that. So I think you need to be smart about that. You shouldn't be on super busy street when you're using a scooter. If there are no bicycle lanes and you have heavily foot traffic on your sidewalks, I mean, maybe you shouldn't be picking up a scooter and using it. And I think that's some of the risk in, in these cities. You know, not all cities are equipped for bicycles. Weaving in and out of traffic in a scooter is potentially extremely dangerous. That is great advice. Thank you so much, Dr. Vinoker. How many times have you heard someone say this? I'm not getting a flu vaccine, I don't want to get the flu. Or, I'm not getting a flu shot because I got sick the last time I got one. 
Or maybe you're the person saying that every year. Well, here's the truth about the flu shot and what you need to know about getting yours this year. The number one thing you need to know is this. You cannot get the flu from the flu shot. Let's say that again. The flu shot will not give you the flu. The vaccines are either made from dead viruses, weak viruses, or no virus at all. You might think you have the flu afterward, but really, if you feel feverish or achy, it's because your immune system is learning how to fight what's in the vaccine. Some people have a sore spot where they got the shot in their arm also, but any side effects should only last a day or two. If you're sick afterward, it could be that you picked up another virus like the rhinovirus, which is linked to the common cold but causes flu-like symptoms. Or maybe you got the flu before your vaccine could take effect. It takes about two weeks to start working. Or you could have come into contact with a form of the flu that the vaccine doesn't cover. Unfortunately, some people get the shot and get the flu anyway. If it happens, the vaccine can make it less severe. The second thing you need to know, yes, you do need a flu shot. In fact, every person older than six months needs one every year. Every other year or so is not okay. There are a couple reasons why. The immune system protection from a flu shot wears off over the year and needs to be re-upped. And flu viruses change all the time. The one that made everybody sick last year may not be the same one that does it this year. Scientists work hard to predict which ones are going to hit and create the year's vaccines specifically to fight them. The next thing you need to know is when to get your flu shot. In the United States, flu season usually starts around October and can last as late as May. Peak time is between December and February. The CDC says your best bet is to get it done by the end of October. It takes about two weeks for your body's protection to kick in, so you want to have the vaccine working in your system before flu season really takes off where you live. However, better late than never does apply here. You should be able to get a shot as late as January. Now let's talk about what type of vaccine you'll get. There is more than one. There's the standard dose, which is what most of us get as a shot in the arm muscle. If you're over 65, you'll probably get either a high-dose shot, which is four times more powerful than a regular injection, or adjuvant doses, which have an extra ingredient designed to give your immune system a boost. Most flu vaccines are made with hen's eggs. If you're severely allergic to eggs, you'll probably get either a cell-based vaccine or a recombinant vaccine. These types use little to no egg. And if you or your child really hate needles, there's also the nasal spray vaccine. This type is good for most people between age 2 and 49. Health officials haven't always recommended it, but this year they say it might work better than in recent years. However, experts say the shot is still better for kids than the spray. Finally, after you get your flu shot, here are some more things you can do to prevent the flu. Stay away from sick people, wash your hands to reduce the spread of germs, and if you're sick, stay home from work or school so you don't spread the flu to others. And it's also a good idea to encourage your loved ones to get their flu vaccines too. Aspirin has a reputation for helping your heart, but could it also be harmful to your health? A few recent studies have us asking questions about this little pill. Doctors have prescribed aspirin for years as a way to prevent heart attacks and strokes. It has several pros. It's cheap and easy to get compared with other types of prescription meds. So experts have wondered if it could help more people protect their health. 
But the research isn't looking positive on that front. Recently, scientists studied 19,000 people in the U.S. and Australia for four years. And these were people 70 and older who were otherwise healthy. They were looking to see if a daily low dose of aspirin could help people live longer without developing dementia or a physical disability. In the end, the people taking aspirin every day did no better and lived no longer than those who took a placebo pill. In fact, they had a significantly higher risk of bleeding in the brain and digestive tract than those who didn't take aspirin. Another recent study of 12,000 people found that after five years, aspirin was no better than a placebo at preventing first heart attacks and strokes for people who had smoked, had high blood pressure, or high cholesterol. Now, many medical groups like the American Heart Association still say a low dose of aspirin is good for some people. So who should take it and what are the possible risks? Dr. Michael Smith, our chief medical editor, is here to give us the truth about aspirin. Hey there. <laughs> Hi there. So let's start with the basics. What is aspirin and what does it do to your body? I mean, it's actually a pretty powerful little pill. You know, it decreases inflammation, relieves pain and fever. Some evidence shows it actually decreases the risk of colon cancer, but a biggie is that it helps prevent blood clots. You know, we often use the term blood thinner, and that's how it actually can help prevent heart attacks and strokes because most of those are actually due to development of a blood clot. Why is it that doctors recommended that people start taking it regularly in the first place? Well, because we know that heart attacks and strokes are often due to a blood clot either in the heart or the brain, taking a blood thinner such as aspirin would theoretically decrease the risk of having one of those. And actually, studies do show that. It shows that people who take a regular daily aspirin have fewer heart attacks and strokes. Now, it's specific who we recommend take an aspirin, and we really have to weigh the benefits of decreasing heart attack and stroke against some of the risks, which they did see in the study, especially bleeding in the digestive tract or, you know, even more troubling in the brain. Right. And you mentioned these, these large studies that found that even though there are those positive effects for preventing heart attacks, aspirin didn't help older people live longer, and it didn't help people who already had some risk factors like high blood pressure and smoking. So who is it who should take aspirin and why should they take it? Let's be clear. We know that people who have had a heart attack or who have had a stroke significantly benefit from the use of a daily aspirin. That's not who we're talking about. That is really clear. What we're talking about is people who have not had a heart attack or stroke before that actually happens for the first time. Is there any benefit to them taking a daily aspirin? As of now, like prior to these studies, what doctors typically did is they weighed the benefits against the potential risks. What's their bleeding risk versus their risk of a heart disease? Kind of based on that equation, should someone take a daily aspirin? Now, that does mean that a lot of people over the age of 50 today are taking a regular low-dose daily aspirin. These studies suggest that maybe that's not the best idea for everybody. But here's the thing. It doesn't really necessarily change anything we do today, but it does inform that discussion with you and your doctor. And it's going to have to be a, an individualized decision between you and your doctor because you really need to determine what your risk of having a heart attack or stroke is compared to you know the bleeding risk, for example. So it's about the balance of what you might get from aspirin versus what you would potentially be risking. And you did mention the risk of bleeding from aspirin. What are some of the other things 
that aspirin could cause. It's not a totally benign drug. No, just like any drug, any medication you take, there are potential side effects. Bleeding is certainly by far the most concerning one, bleeding in the in the stomach or intestines or bleeding in the brain. Some of the other possible effects are even just stomach irritation. A lot of people have like upset stomach after they take aspirin. Over time, that could lead to an ulcer, could lead to a bleeding ulcer. So it's kind of all related to that side effect of aspirin. Some people have allergies, but by and large, it's really the risk of bleeding that is most concerning. All in all, it sounds like there are still some benefits possibly for some people to take aspirin. Some people should be a little more careful. For people who do take aspirin every day or who are thinking they might need to, what are some of the things they should consider? Keep in mind, this doesn't really change anything significantly today. What it does mean, though, is it's a good reason to have that conversation again with your doctor. Your doctor now will have additional information, additional evidence to kind of put into that conversation with you to determine, well, maybe for you, the risks are a little bit greater based on the fact that these two studies show that maybe there's not as much benefit as we thought, again, for people who have had no history of heart attack and stroke. So I would encourage anyone who is on a daily aspirin who does not have a history of heart attack and stroke or stroke to have that conversation with your doctor because this really does help inform whether or not it might be the best thing for you. Dr. Michael Smith, WebMD's chief medical editor, thanks so much for parsing this out with us about these new studies about aspirin. My pleasure. Your weight is important, but it isn't the only measurement that matters. Let's look at some other numbers that tell you just as much about your health as the number you see when you step on the scale. How about the amount of time you spend doing certain things each day? First, there's screen time. Limit yourself to two hours a day that isn't work or school related. Yes, that includes your smartphone. Stay glued to it too long, and you're likely to get a condition called text neck, which causes back, neck, and shoulder pain. Screens in the bedroom can mess with your sleep, and screens during the day can make you less active and more distracted. And a number you've probably heard about a lot lately, the time you spend sitting down. When you stay seated, your body metabolism slows, so you burn fewer calories. Your muscles and joints stiffen up, and your back may hurt. How bad is it for you? Even working out an hour a day, seven days a week, won't undo the unhealthy effects of sitting all day. Get up every 30 minutes or so to stretch or take a short walk. How much sleep you get matters too. Adults usually need seven to nine hours a night. Your body uses that time to fix tissue, make hormones, and grow muscle. Your brain uses it to process the day's information and learning into memories. Lack of sleep can make you hungrier and make junk food more appealing. It helps to get some extra shut-eye if you haven't had enough, but you really can't make up lost sleep. And here's a bit of a surprise. You hear a lot about getting 10,000 steps a day, but there's nothing special about that number. Anywhere between 4,000 and 18,000 is good. No matter how many steps you take, aim for 30 minutes of moderate exercise a day, at least five days a week, and make sure you do it for at least 10 minutes at a time. Now let's talk about the numbers you're likely to hear about from your doctor. First up, your cholesterol. A set of tests measures different kinds of fats in your blood. There's bad or LDL cholesterol, good HDL cholesterol, and triglycerides. In general, your total cholesterol score should be less than 200. That's milligrams per deciliter. You want your HDL to be 60 or more and your triglycerides below 150. 
unhealthy levels could lead to narrow or blocked arteries, heart attack, and stroke. Also important is your blood sugar. You probably won't check it on your own unless there's a problem with it. If there is, your doctor will set targets for you. You need to keep it in check because high levels can lead to long-term damage of your heart, blood vessels, and kidneys. Daily exercise and healthy eating can help bring your blood sugar down. And finally, there's blood pressure. Your upper or systolic number should be below 120. Your lower diastolic number should be below 80. If the numbers are 130 and 80 or higher, you have high blood pressure. You may not have any symptoms, but it can damage your heart and blood vessels. Over time, it could cause problems with your kidneys, eyes, and sex life. Check the link in our show notes to learn about other important numbers that affect your health. Now for our tweak of the week, shrug your shoulders. A few times a day, move your shoulders up to your ears and down again. It's a gentle prompt to focus on better posture. What is good posture? You keep your ears over the middle of your shoulders, head straight, belly and hips tucked in. This position eases stress on your spine and other bones, muscles, and joints. It could even make you feel better and look slimmer. Regular exercise helps your posture too. Try dancing, yoga, Pilates, anything that targets the core and upper back muscles. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next time.